The University of Connecticut is a pioneering body of research and innovation. This podcast brings you the stories, the motivations, the passions possessed by the people behind this success. Welcome to UConn in Vivo. Hello everyone, today we're excited to bring you Dr. Salamia Ivakiv. She's the head of strings and professor of violin and viola here at UConn, and she discusses the bright future that UConn's music department has ahead of itself, as well as the importance and state of classical music in the world today. This was a really fun conversation, and we hope you enjoy listening. Victor, welcome. Hey. Dr. Salamia Ivakiv, welcome. Thank you. Did I say much. that correct? Yes, you did. Great job. <laughs> Good job. So, let me just read a little bit of a background about you. You are the head of strings in the music department, you're a professor of violin and viola. You immigrated here from Ukraine as a teenager, and since you've established an illustrious career in the world of classical music, your debut album, Journey to Freedom, was top five on an iTunes billboard. You've played alongside the likes of famous musicians from Justin Timberlake to Aretha Franklin to Sir Elton John. You've received many awards, some from the president of Ukraine. You've been broadcast on China television, its second most popular channel, played throughout symphonies all over the world. With that success, you know, you could be imagined to work anywhere. What keeps you here at UConn? Well, first of all, thank you for doing your homework. (laughs) (laughs) And it's great to be here and to meet you in Victor. What brought me to UConn is, first of all, I heard about the University of Connecticut for a long, long time and uh, that this is a great place to work. So when there was an opening for a professor of violin and viola position, I applied and I got lucky. I got the job (laughs) and here I am. And uh, this is my fifth year at UConn and I love the work that we do here, the I see the progress, and I have big plans for this school as the head of strings and also uh, as a faculty member at the music department. So what are those big plans? Big plans. The big plans are to have a big, big orchestra full of strings that play so well that we can take them and tour China and Europe and maybe go to Australia. So build it up into a a world-class. Yes, a world-class string department. Mm. And we're on a way of doing that. Past year, we hired a new cello Mm. professor. She's an Every Fisher Korea grant recipient and won a very prestigious Rostropovich competition. And when I came to this country in 1997, to study at the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia, I heard of Sophie back then. Mm-hmm. So 
little did I know that 21 years later <laughs> your pants would merge <laughs> that we will be colleagues at the U- University of Connecticut yeah it's very interesting how things work out is there an initiative from the state or from the university to grow the music department or is this driven and motivated by you I think it's motivated by my chair Dr. Eric Rice who is in charge of the music department also by the dean of School of Fine Arts Dr. Andaleva but supported very much by the university, by the president and vice provost and provost Kennedy. So to build that up, is that to do with attracting talent in terms of students or is it more professors or both? And how do you go about Recruiting? Yeah, recruiting, I guess. Very, very good question. So first of all, yes, we need to have more full-time positions. Mm -hmm. And for that, we need finance. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's all about the, yes, uh, the budget. But the chair of the music department managed to get several hires and several openings for full-time professor positions despite the budget cuts. But what we as faculty need to do is to recruit heavily and have a very attractive program that the students from different parts of this country and also from outside of Mm -hmm. the U.S. will come and study with us because they will see that we have wonderful faculty and program and the opportunities for them to grow as musicians. So... Yes, we are growing, but we need more financial support. And uh, hopefully the state recognizes that arts are important. Mm-hmm. This is always a fight, right? Always right? a problem, yeah. And what? that we are educating, uh, making big contributions to society by educating and helping develop young generations. Mm-hmm. So how did you yourself get involved in the world of music? And what was your childhood like growing up in Ukraine? And what motivated you to pursue a career in classical music? Well, I started playing violin when I was six years old. I grew up in a communist Ukraine and the borders were closed. And the only way that people could travel is uh, when they were either musicians or they were in circus <laughs> or they were entertainment mm-hmm. yeah, in the industry or they were members of the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. So what I chose because I had a love for music is to be involved in music. And my childhood dream was to travel and to make new friends and to visit as many countries as possible. I thought when I was dreaming about that back in 19... 19- 86, I never thought that my dream will come true. So I do have to say the dreams do come true (laughs) if you dream very hard and you work for it. But six years old, that's a huge dream to have at that age, right? I guess. I don't know. It didn't seem that big. (laughs) But I loved music from from a very early age. I just knew that in order for me to have uh, the opportunity to travel, I have to work hard and become good. You still play and teach violin and viola, is that because that was the first instrument you started playing when you grew up, or you just naturally had an inclination towards the music produced by that instrument? I actually wanted to play the piano, but I had to audition for a special music school. The committee decided during the admission that I have a good musical ear and that there are too many pianists and I should be a violinist. So believe it or not, for three weeks I was afraid to tell my mother (laughs) that I'm going to be a violinist, not a pianist, because we had a piano at home, but we didn't have the violin. So when my mom got a letter in the mail that I'm going to be a violinist, she was furious, and she called her very good friend, 
and said, can you imagine she's going to be a violinist? And he said, no, 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 let her play the cello. (laughs) (laughs) And my mom said, cello? I will be dragging that big instrument around, (laughs) schlepping with it everywhere. No, 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 (laughs) let her be a violinist then. (laughs) So that's how I became a violinist. So a stroke of luck, I would say, because I love the instrument Mm -hmm. and I think it fits me much more than a piano would. But that instrument was given to me and was not picked. Wow. Have you picked up other instruments over time just for fun? That's a very good question. I used to play piano and I was pretty serious about piano for six years, but then I had to pick because you can't excel in both. Mm. For fun, you know, it's... I don't want to say we don't have fun musicians, (laughs) but we are so focused and work-driven that... Uh, to me, I'm surrounded by music. Mm-hmm. So even when I come home, only recently I started listening to pop music or to jazz, actually, because I hear music 20 hours a day. So extra noise <laughs> <laughs> does not relax me. Sure. Does it, does it, make, it sense? makes sense? Oh, it makes perfect sense. But also, I mean, do you learn, do you get inspiration from other genres other than what you play? First of all, in order to be a good musician, you have to know the literature, you have to read poems, because a lot of pieces, a lot of music is based on the poems, and also you have to appreciate fine arts, modern and older, because it's all connected, and in order to be a complete musician, you don't have to be an expert, but you have to be aware and have some knowledge and background in other areas. And so, especially music, when we perform music, we we talk about emotions because music is a language. So we can't just play the notes and we have to communicate people's feelings or communicate about what is going on in the world through the instrument because that's why the composers wrote the pieces. They didn't write the piece just because they had an itch and to use the pen and put something on a piece of paper. They had a solid idea. For example, Beethoven, Eroica Symphony, he dedicated to Napoleon, right? But then he was disappointed with Napoleon's intentions to become emperor, that he changed, that he was idealist at the beginning, but then he changed his, uh, converted and changed his persona, right? So Beethoven, erased his dedication to Napoleon and most composers their music reflects the time they live in and it speaks about human issues and human emotions so for us musicians we have to have the knowledge of what is going on what was going on in history when the piece was written who were the friends of the composers what was his love interest what was going on in his life back around that (laughs) Mm -hmm. time that the piece was written in order for us to have a complete picture about the work so you're talking about studying kind of this process that past composers had gone through when you yourself are making new music and you're trying to translate that emotion and that experience and that history into sounds through these instruments what is that process like for you how do you go about transforming your experiences and emotion into music That's a very good question, but kind of difficult to answer. (laughs) I think most musicians are very sensitive people. And what we try to do with our instruments is to create a picture. So we know the tricks, how to change the sound, how to change the colors. But probably a lot comes from the imagination because 
I might feel that I'm playing an orange color for you, but you might think it was green. Hmm. <laughs> because music is not objective. And so it's hard. And whatever I'm feeling at that moment, you might think I was doing something else. So hmm. I, I don't really have the answer to it. All I can say that when I try to communicate what I feel and what I think the composer wanted me to feel, but you might experience something completely different sure. in the whole sitting. So, I mean, is your writing process, like you have a an emotion in mind and so you write a few notes and you play it and you say, oh, that sounds like how I envision it would sound like. That would might what might composer feel i don't write i did as a child try mm -hmm. to write a few compositions but i realized that i play so many great pieces and i'm a very bad I composer i don't have that gift so i stopped i don't think okay. i i had written a note in 20 years only because this is not my forte and i play such great music i know what good music should sound sure. like <laughs> yeah. it's like being you know it's like a coach of a sports team that's not a good athlete themselves or the athlete might not be a good mm -hmm. coach but they together the, the coach calls the plays and the players execute those plays exactly sort of like that, right? and also it's a different field i'm a performer and someone who is a composer might be a very good performer but that usually you focus on one area. Right. So I'm not saying that there are plenty of good musicians that sure, also yes. can play and compose, but we tend to have our own areas of expertise and that's how we advance and excel. For you then, what does your research encompass? I mean, I know you have a PhD, so what are you studying in order to enhance your performing capabilities? My research is actually performing. So by traveling and performing concerts, either with symphony orchestra solo or playing chamber music, collaborating with other people, that's considered research for me. It's one of the components of the research because obviously, as I mentioned before I play the piece, I have to do all of the homework and learn about the composer right. and uh, the, the background of the work. But I'm a practical academic. What I do is I play the violin and I teach the violin and I teach students how to play the violin well. So so what made you decide to become a teacher in the first place? You do still continue to go around and mm -hmm. play with different orchestras around the world, but why did you settle down I, in... Uh... I come from the family of educators. So my father, he's a professor at the university. My mom is a professor of the university. Mm. Uh, at the university, my both grandmas were teachers. So I think it was engraved. Yeah, it's <laughs> in your me. blood. <laughs> it's in my blood. And uh, when I was younger, I, um, I used to teach my cousins math and physics and give them, I love to give them grades and sometimes <laughs> very bad grades and <laughs> that they could work harder. So I guess it's just a part of who I am. Mm -hmm. And I also love seeing the development of a student and get some raw material at the beginning of their career, a studying career at UConn and see them develop and blossom when they leave. So it's a very rewarding feeling to know that you can help someone to develop their potential and do you have a specific teaching philosophy that you try to implement i do it's one approach does not fit all <laughs> 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 yes it's i think it's very individual 
as because actually growing up the system that was implemented in Soviet Union everyone had to be the same and individuality was not celebrated and as you can tell I'm all about right. <laughs> uh, doing your own thing but in a collegial manner you know so basically when I was growing up I was given fingerings and have to play the notes and everyone had to do the same thing so I have no idea how could you stand out if you were just told by your teacher and then your friend was told the same thing and right. we were just copying one person as ideas and that never sat well with me i always wanted to be able to express myself so i think everyone has strengths and weaknesses and i just do not apply the same approach to all students they all do different things and they sound different because they have to find their own unique voice. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I don't think any field really has a one-size-fits-all no, model not. for learning. One thing I do want to talk about is your illustrious career. I think the most fascinating part of it is that you came to the United States from Ukraine as a teenager and sort of built this from the ground up, right? I mean, Thank you, you weren't really handed anything yeah. and you've just taken classical music by storm. Yeah, Do you have any I, specific influences here in the U.S. when you arrived that maybe took you under their wing? Any mentors? Any mentors? Uh, I was lucky to be accepted to the world-renowned conservatory, uh, the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia. Uh, that school is very, very special, and if I may brag... Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. Feel free. The acceptance rate is lower than in Harvard. Wow. Oh, wow. So it's a known conservatory throughout the world that uh, people aspire to get into. So that was a part of the luck that was granted to me so, and then at school i was very overwhelmed because the level was very very high and the big soloists that you see at carnegie perform today they were my classmates so it was hard to find balance in my place because i came from a different background but the teachers there were very supportive and very nurturing they are the ones who taught me to just find my own voice instead of try to copy what others do. And they were very patient and it was not an easy road, but you know, we all work hard. And once you work hard, I think things come out. It's just one needs to be very patient. Is the world of music, or at least maybe at this institution, the students there, is it more collaborative or is it competitive? Is it each person trying to be the best? I mean, I know you get seated, right? And the better seats are given to the better players, performers? That's in orchestra, in orchestra, yes. Yeah. And actually, that's very interesting because in Curtis Symphony Orchestra holds auditions, annual audition, and whoever wins the concertmaster position gets to play on the best violin. And I won my last year that position, and I got to play on a very, very beautiful instrument from the Curtis collection. Congratulations. Oh, wow. Thank you. So it was something that meant a lot to me, but I think the school was very competitive. <laughs> but now when I go back and visit, everyone is very nice. So I don't know, maybe because of the language barrier, culture shock, it was not easy for me at the beginning. So maybe it didn't have to do so much with the lack of collegiality, but more of a culture shock to me. But 
I will lie if I say that it was a piece <laughs> of cake. I think those were one of the toughest years in my life when I moved to the States. And then trying to find my own niche and path was a second challenge. Do you think the world of music, maybe even classical music, would benefit from a collaborative approach rather than competitive? I think adults actually try to collaborate. It's more the students are so ambitious <laughs> and are less, are less, I don't want to say friendly, because actually outside of the field, everyone is very friendly, mm-hmm. but students are very competitive. But It's a different perspective, though, yeah. right? I mean, when you're a student, you have different goals and motivations than yes. once you've become accomplished. You're hungry. You're very you need hungry. to make it. But then once you have made it, you recognize... It's better to work together. Totally, because as an adult, most the uh, most of the colleagues that I have, we all try to help each other and invite each other. We build relationships. We build bridges. That's how we get to play in different places. Because once I played with you in California and we had a very good musical uh, relationship, then we will want to repeat that project somewhere else. So we recommend each other and continue on working on various projects. So adults in classical music and students are two different (laughs) (laughs) animals. Yes, exactly. How is it for you in your field? I would say as a group, I think in our lab, we're collaborative and we support each other, but then we want to be the best lab, right? So there's a group approach that inherent, we want to support each other, but we want to be the best ones. So we're competitive and us ourselves, the specific lab we're in definitely selects for competitive people. So I know I'll look at my lab mate and be like, oh, you logged five pages in your lab notebook, you're working pretty hard. I need to step up my game and work harder because I'm not going to settle for you doing more work than I am. So inherently, we are competitive people, but we recognize the world of science benefits most when you come together and support each other. And so the projects you're working on oftentimes aren't spearheaded by one specific person, but a whole group of people with the same purpose and motivation. Then together, you do still want to be the first ones to prove a certain concept or discover a certain principle or cure a certain disease. So it's I'd say relatively similar. But I think it's very healthy uh, to be in the environment where everyone is driven. That's why one of the reasons why I feel privileged that I went to Curtis, same as Professor Shao, the Mm -hmm. child professor. We went at different times and we didn't overlap at all. But it's because everyone is so driven that if this practice, you've seen that person practice for four hours, you don't want to be the one who didn't practice Mm -hmm. because you want to sound better than that person Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so there is a healthy competition that benefits everyone and the school as well because that's how the reputation sustains and maintains but it needs to be healthy it has to be there's a sweet spot there is yeah so was it at the curtis institute that you were given the opportunity to play alongside of sir elton john aretha franklin (laughs) After I graduated, After actually, graduated. yes, I started working in Philadelphia and I played, uh, I was a substitute member with the Philadelphia Orchestra, but I was also assistant concertmaster for the Philly Pops. And uh, Philly Pops uh, played in Live Aid concerts and Sir Elton John and Paddy LaBelle were participating. So I played with them on that occasion, but I also played with uh, Josh Groban. I actually came to Foxfoot, Foxfoot, Fox yeah. yeah, to tour with him. 
And I was a member of the orchestra, small orchestra, and who else? Uh, gosh. And being in Philadelphia, and because I develop a, a reputation that I'm reliable and I can read well <laughs> in the music, <laughs> and I'm also not a stiff classical violinist, because, you know, you have to have some groove when right. you play. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've seen you play. You definitely have emotion, for oh, sure. But so it was a lot of fun to record Justin Timberlake's What Go. Yeah, how did you get involved with him? <laughs> you know, the producer who made the arrangement for him was actually Curtis Gred. Who's that? Uh, oh. Larry Gold. He won a lot of Grammys. And he quit cello, and mm -hmm. he became a pop music producer, and he produced, I think, Jennifer Lopez, one of her albums. And he, I got a phone call, and he said, Solomia, do you want to come come for a session to record? <laughs> and I remember I, I took a nap. I <laughs> <laughs> didn't dress up. I showed up, and I see Justin Timberlake. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, Cameron Diaz was there, too, uh, wow. because it was back in 2006. Mm -hmm. And they were very sweet. There were four of us violinists, and uh, he was dancing while we were playing. <laughs> oh, and he's got moves. Does he? <laughs> yes. Yeah. You've seen those videos. I mean, he put on a fantastic <laughs> Super Bowl performance yeah. just this last year. Yeah. So now he's very talented because yeah. you know being a classical musician and a pop musician are two different things, but. I respect a lot of people who are generally talented and work hard and just are successful in their craft. So, Do you appreciate the hybridization of different genres, like when pop music takes classical musical instruments and sort of blends the two? Absolutely. And also pop music quite often uses excerpts from very well-known classical right. pieces. and. I embrace it because we can play the music that is 300 years old and expect everyone to love it. Mm -hmm. right. So, but once someone who doesn't have the background in classical music will hear Justin Timberlake sing and an excerpt of Bach cello prelude, and then that person might be interested mm -hmm. to, to hear the whole prelude or once hears it on a radio will have some kind of recollection and understanding that, oh, I heard that before and it's cool, right. you know? So I think integration is necessary because in the world of music, in the world of art and visual arts, dramatic arts, and this is what, going back to my place of work, the mm -hmm. University of Connecticut, this is what's happening at UConn, the, the collaboration between departments and embracing the fact that we live in 2018, that we deal with lots of issues, political issues, gender issues, mm -hmm. and we base our projects off that. So there are many interesting right. things that happen at the School of Fine Arts. So here's something I always wonder. There's a message that people should listen to classical music more. But I just always wonder what the motivation is to get more people to listen to classical music. What does classical music offer for people as opposed to other genres of music? Why is there a motivation to get more people to listen to classical music? Because I think classical music actually organizes the brain. Does it? Yes. Yeah, that's actually true. If you study while listening to classical music, you retain information better. Yeah. So there is... And art, because classical music is so complex. And let me go back. Sure. So pop singers, right? Why do we like their tunes? Because they are so simple and catchy and you can mm -hmm. understand and remember them. 
classical music has those tunes too, but they are integrated into much complex picture and canvas. So, and it's well thought out, and it's not just a bunch of notes or noise that you hear or notes that you see on a piece of sure. paper. There is a system to how it was written. It was all calculated, well thought out. So there is an organization to it. Mm -hmm. So studies prove that when children study classical music at the young age, it helps them to become better at math, right? You probably heard yeah. that. Yeah, I've also heard that. Yeah, so... Also, someone like me, when I listen to classical music, I always analyze. Like, my brain is racing 300 miles an hour. But someone who is not a musician and listen to the classical music, it will probably can relax you and put you in a different state. Right. Because to me, it's a job and I need to, to analyze. Me it's just, and to you, it's just... I don't appreciate no, any of the nuances. It's just a one well, uniform well, piece. Exactly. So you have a very different experience than I do because I always analyze. It's dangerous for me to drive and listen to classical music <laughs> because I start thinking, You get distracted. Yes. But for someone who is not involved in the business of classical music, that can give you an idea for something else in your life, for your thesis, for your next project, because it opens up the channels that you don't use 24 hours. Mm -hmm. My channels are blocked because I use them. <laughs> so I need to read a book or look at the art or watch a movie as you said i have to find different outlets to stimulate my brain but for someone who is not a musician that could be a good tool does it make sense it does definitely so how why do you think it's important for people to listen to classical music well why would it be important for people to go and see the art or to, to see a play. Right. I guess that was sort of a naive it's, question. No, 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 no. I'm not making fun of you. I'm <laughs> just saying that. Uh, I'm just saying that it's a part of human expression. Ex yes, and uh, exactly. It's and a way to communicate a, the human condition through an art form. See, you said it better. <laughs> <laughs> but so another question, a follow-up question is: How can musicians like yourselves get non-musicians like myself to appreciate the nuances of the classical music. Is there ways that we can better promote public understanding of the intricacies of these projects? Absolutely. And I think it has changed in the past 10 years because before people would just come on stage, bow, look very stiff and try to play their hearts out and do their best. But, you know, people in the audience were like, okay, so they came out, they played, they left. Right. right now, the musicians on stage are trying to get the audience involved. And often, what we do before we play the piece, we explain what to listen for. And I think that's an important mm. tool. When you give a few pointers, what one can focus on Provide while listening. the context. Listen. Yeah. Yeah, for example, I played in a summer a very beautiful piece, a Tchaikovsky Souvenirs, uh, Souvenir de Florence for six instruments. And uh, a cellist that I was in a group with, he talked about listen to her voice and then listen to me answering her. It's like two people having a conversation and then the rest is noise. No, just joking. <laughs> but giving people to to focus on something, I think, helps to, to get a clear picture. They see those nuances. They start yeah. looking in for and recognizing others. And 
have yeah, have its all incorporated. Yeah. Yes. And the meaning and the emotion mm-hmm. behind it. Exactly. And also why to listen to classical music? Because it might evoke emotions from you that mm-hmm. you never experienced before. So Right. Ben Zander has a fantastic TED Talk about how everyone can appreciate classical music. He says, like, don't look at it that 3% of the world listens to classical music, but 97% of the world doesn't yet understand that they, too, like classical music, right? It's flipping it on its head. Uh-huh. It's that everyone can find emotion and connect to what the message of classical music is, and specific piece can warrant an emotional response from any listener because of how well-developed these musical Ideas are. are. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Are you from Boston? No. Why? Oh, oh, because of Ben Sanders. Oh, I just like watching TED Talks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I see. <laughs> because he's a well-known figure gotcha. there. But, <laughs> youth. but you asked me if there is a future for classical music. I think there is, because I remember Gary Grafman, who just turned 90, was saying, a very famous pianist, um, was saying that when he was young, People were complaining that the audiences are dying and there will be no one to come and hear the concerts. And he said, and I was five years old. (laughs) (laughs) He's now 90. Do we usually have people who are at certain age that enjoy going to concerts? That's true. Do we need to be a little bit more proactive and make classical music appealing to younger crowds? Absolutely. Maybe by integrating other forms of musical arts Mm -hmm. into the concerts but is it dying i don't know i don't think so because no classical music will survive many other genres sure (laughs) (laughs) because fundamentally it's 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 one of the oldest too right exactly it's a foundation of everything what we right. hear now on the radio and it's already proven and, itself just by ex- getting this far <laughs> exactly <already> <laughs> So what current projects are you working on now? Do you have a new album that's coming out soon? I do have two new albums coming out. That's exciting. And it's a working project because (laughs) the producer put it on hold, unfortunately, (laughs) because he got overwhelmed and didn't finish it at the time I was hoping it will be finished. But the works that will go on those two albums are pieces for violin and piano and symphony orchestra. And you ask me, what kind of research do I do? So this comes to research. I love and I played here with Yukon's chamber orchestra, Mendelssohn Concerto for solo violin, solo piano, and chamber orchestra, string chamber orchestra, so a small ensemble. And then after doing some research, I realized that Mendelssohn himself wrote a version for the solo violin, solo piano, and a full symphony orchestra. And after researching some more, I realized there were only two or three recordings in the world made out of this version. Mm -hmm. And the other version for the chamber orchestra, probably hundreds, if not thousands. How did you discover this? Just by doing Google the research, <laughs> <laughs> but just by yes, spending the time. To exactly, look it up. spending yeah. the time. Then I had to research where can I get the score because right. that score was found in a German library and they have copyrights and it was difficult to borrow mm-hmm. the music. Mm-hmm. But after all of the legwork, I was able to record and borrow the music and record it with the Slovak National Symphony, and a very 
phenomenal pianist. His name is Antonio Pompabaldi. He is a winner of Cleveland competition and my, he teaches at the Cleveland Institute of Music. And conductor Theodore Kucher, we recorded that version. And I have to tell you, I'm in love with that version because it sounds so complete. And sometimes when composer write a good piece, mm -hmm. another composer reorchestrates it because the music is so good, but it needs something extra. That reorchestration was done by Mendelssohn himself. And wow. um, so it's it's special, exactly. Sure. And when I talked to my colleagues, I was like, do you know that he wrote this piece for violin, piano, and a full orchestra? They're like, no, I only know the small orchestra version. Mm -hmm. So I'm very excited about that recording because not too many people know about the existence of this arrangement. And it's pretty special. And it will be um, that CD will be produced by Brilliant Classic, which is uh, Classics, which is a European label as well as I recorded another Mendelssohn concerto for uh, for violin. It's a concerto number two that was only found in a library in Germany 50 years ago as well. So, you know, those pieces, those jewels that are still, you, you would think that we know everything, but know that more and more music being discovered in the libraries. And that's part of my research to, to uh, work with less familiar works, mm -hmm. but hopefully, by performing them, they will become and more uh, of a household right. name. And you're also bringing Mendelssohn's artistic vision to justice, right? By thank you. doing uh, him this yes. service of, you know, bringing this work into mm -hmm. life. Yeah, thank you. Yes. And he's worth it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have a favorite classical musician or an artist uh, overall? You know, it's so hard. People ask me, who is my favorite composer? Mm -hmm. It's very hard to tell because I love Bach, I love Brahms, I love Beethoven. And to be honest, I like every piece I play, even if I hate that piece at the beginning. At the <laughs> end, when I spend some time with it and I have to learn it, it becomes a part of you. Right. So do you have a favorite composer? I do not. Chopin. Chopin. Oh, it's a good nice. One. Yeah. Did you play an instrument growing up? Uh, I played alto sax, mm. so not really particularly suited for this, but um, yeah, uh, it's more jazz for the most part, but I just I really like Chopin. Okay, great. What is the piece by Ben Zander? Do you know what it's called? Prelude in E minor, I think is... Yeah, that, that's a good that piece. Was he, he, in the TED Talk you were yes. to? Yeah. It was one of his preludes. All right. We've talked for about 45 minutes. Wow, um, time yeah. yeah, it flew by. Thank you so much for joining us. We have to log off. Do you have anything you want to ask us before we go? Or do you have any message you want to put out there about interested students or any potential listener to classical music? I would like to invite everyone who you know <laughs> to come to concerts because, sure. you know, we offer free concerts in Wander Maiden, mm -hmm. which is on... Um, for students. For students, yes, and faculty free admission mm -hmm. as well. And we have Jorgensen Center on campus that how awesome that Jorgensen can have one day, you know, a ballet, another day Jay Leno or right. Don Lennon, you mm -hmm. know, and then a comedian and then a and then a string quartet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how lucky are we? That's amazing. So please don't be afraid. Classical music is not scary. Come in jeans. <laughs> you know, I think we should do like a lunch concert or something that bring your own food sure, that and would like. Be fun. 
and just come in here and see what we do because the music students are very enthusiastic and it's a passion for them. It's not their job. They are mm-hmm. dedicated and they are passionate about what they do. What are the upcoming concerts? Do you know off the top of your head? The symphony orchestra concert uh, just took place mm-hmm. two weeks ago, but our students competed in a competition, which is called Aria Concerto Competition, and a student of mine won, Andrew <laughs> Tang, who is going to play Sibelius Concert, a very good piece. Awesome. I highly recommend for you guys to, you know, when you're doing your work, to listen to mm-hmm. it. It's haunting. Sibelius is a Finnish composer, so it's imagine cold winter in Finland I or see. in stores, Connecticut. Yes, oh, perfectly relatable. <laughs> And uh, it's very technically challenging. So Taryn Kuzma, soprano, will sing, and Andrew Peng will perform Sibelius Concerto. And it's on Thursday, December 6th at 8 o'clock in Wonder Maiden. Awesome. So, you know, it would be great to see some uh, students in the concert because it's people their own age, mm-hmm. their peers who worked very hard and won the competition will be performing for the... Yeah, but we'll get the us. message out. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, yes. guys. Thank you again for having me. It's wonderful to talk to you and uh, thank you for what you do. It's yes. important for us to have those conversations. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us <laughs> as non-musicians. I mean, it's been a tremendous conversation i feel like i've learned a ton yeah same here yeah all right me too let's sign <laughs> up. this podcast is made possible by funding from the office of the provost and the office of the vice president for research thanks for listening